So we're at now class 62. Unbelievable. I don't know, I don't know when we started, but it's quite impressive. Two years? Really? How time flies when you're having fun. Okay. I mean, I took months off, I know, but still. Okay, are we ready? Does anyone have anything to ask or say before we start a new Samyama, <laughs> as it were? This is number 353. Samyama on single sequential moments gives discrimination. I love that. Again, here, what Patanjali is teaching is to go to the heart of whatever is being considered. One cannot really understand anything by nosing about its periphery. (laughs) Swami has fun sometimes. (laughs) You can't understand anything by nosing about its periphery. You have to go to the center. But uh, samyama, absorption or concentration on single sequential moments. So, I mean, what is he really talking about? What he's really talking about is having no consciousness of past or future, but just having consciousness of it's now, and then it's still now, and then it's still now. I mean, that's what I'm understanding here. And now is the center of all reality. When I've, I've described many times now that bicycle wheel with us arrayed out on the rim of the wheel and now being the hub and all those spokes going out from that, which is the trajectory of all of our karma that has to be retraced. If you're on the periphery or even anywhere on those spokes, you're not equidistant from the whole. You're more committed to some aspect of it than you are to the whole. But when you stand in the center, everywhere that you turn, you're looking at the same reality or the same distance from every, every piece of the rim, every aspect, every spoke, everything. You're in exact, equal, perceivable relationship to all of it. It's a little bit of what I was saying on... Sunday, I think it was this Sunday about, or maybe it was the Sunday before, about the master not casting any shadow um, and understanding it from the whispers. I mean, there's that statement that a, an, an avatar casts no shadow. And, I, and in the whispers thing, it talked about because when the light emanates from within you, then the, then the light is equally shining everywhere. When, the, when you are separate from the light and the light shines on you, there's always going to be a point where, where your presence is blocking the light. And so this is the same reality. You can't discriminate clearly because if you're in any way in past or present, I mean past or future, you're not able to perceive as clearly as if you're standing in the center. So, I mean, the whole issue of time, which is a fascinating and extremely difficult concept to understand, uh, is one of those part of those realities. Master said, let's see, because we experience things as happening one after the other, it gives us the impression that one thing causes another, is how he put it. (laughs) Which I just loved thinking about that, because we do. Because this, I mean, of course, you go the other way. I mean, you talk about karmic causes and so on like that. There seems to be a relationship, but he was also telling you that it's not the relationship that you think it is. And later on, as we get to the end of this book, I've read ahead a little bit. Um, it really starts talking about how in Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, you completely relinquish any identification with all of the experiences you had because if there's no ego at the center, they they look different than they look when you're looking at them with ego from the center. So our relationship to time 
is also because we're attached to something that is bound by time. The physical body is bound by time. It's affected by time. So as long as we live in it, um, we, we experience... I mean, how do we tell that time has passed? And think about how people tell time has passed by their children, don't they? I saw on Facebook a picture of your son and you know, his mother and his daughter. And there's Adrian looking like, well, almost like a middle-aged man. How did that happen? Adrian was just a little kid. Adrian was just this darling little two-year-old, this beautiful face. How, what happened? But you look at him now and, and you say, oh, time has passed. And that's how you can tell. We don't see it. Once, once our bodies reach full size, we don't see it quite as clearly. It, we notice every once in a while, but children are just stunning in that. And it's that relation to the body that really gives us that real sense of time. It's a material phenomenon. But if you've moved out of the body, if you've moved out of time into that center, then you can really tell what's happening. That's why he says it gives discrimination. You can discriminate uh, reality from delusion. Fascinating, isn't it? Yes, go ahead. He said you're born every moment. He said you're born every moment. Well, that would be a way to say it. Take the... the, the uh, Lahiri, I can repeat it. Lahiri says that you're born every moment is what is being spoken. And let's think about that. Well, every, well, here's the word, ever knew. And if you actually think about it, you know, it, everything is different now. I mean, two minutes ago, we hadn't been contemplating this thought. And insofar as this thought has affected us, and we're all a little farther from our birth and closer to our death. I mean, think of a hundred things. And that doesn't even count all the random thoughts that went through you, and who knows what the stars did. You know, everything just shifted. So whatever was true is not true anymore. Now we're in something new again. So yes, we have at least the opportunity to be reborn every moment, because that's why um, it's folly to worry about things, not that uh, we don't, because in the moment in which it is needed, it shall be given to you. And how can you have intuition? I mean, this is the way I feel sometimes. How can you know what you're supposed to do or say then? Because it isn't then. <laughs> when it is, then you'll know. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering, um, <clears throat> um, in someone like Master or Swami's, in their mind, because when, when I'm doing anything, I'm pretty pretty regularly jumping to the future or thinking about the past you know, in my, my thought patterns. So if, when you're able to live just completely at the center of the wheel you were just describing, they're not doing that in their minds, right? They're not well, when you think about it like this, Swami just explained it very simply. Look at Swamiji's you know, prodigious creativity and his capacity to accomplish so much in so many different fields just stunningly. And his word for it, his explanation was many, but one of them was really simple, concentration. And, and just think about that. What is concentration? Concentration is, I'm not doing anything but this. And when I'm doing this, I'm doing it 100%. So no, there is no past, there is no future, there is no wandering around. Every bit of energy that I have is right in this. And that's why he could just um, be such an enormous channel, because nothing... He wasn't, there wasn't any energy that was pre-committed in all these other directions. And discrimination, he knew exactly what to say, what to write, you know, what, what note to put, what answer to give. 
whatever it might be, because he was concentrated completely. He was lost in what he was doing. Um, Ram Murti wanted it before. Well, go ahead. Were you trying to get it for someone else, Ram Murti? No. This competition? Yeah. Okay. You know, I wonder if there's some other, um, you know, just this, this idea that delusion and reality become so clear. Right. That, and I'm just trying to get a sense. There must be some quality. I mean, aside from the, the, the level of perception, of course, which is so deep, but they must have a qualitative difference that one perceives. You know, I, I, and now I'm just wildly guessing, but I, I, don't think they, I don't think there's a sense of, oh, that's delusion and this is clarity. I think one is just living. And one is just, you know, just seeing what is. Well, I'll use this as an example. See, um, I've often said that sometimes I thought that Swamiji had a really good attitude or was very disciplined, and then I realized later that he simply had a different state of consciousness. So where I thought he was sorting things out in some way, there were no things to sort out. He just was following a different track entirely. That was the issue of him commenting that he didn't know what color people's eyes were because he never looked at their eyes, he looked into them and through them to the spirit behind it. So it wasn't a question of him saying, oh, well, that's the physical body and that's the spirit. He would just look at an individual and he would see their vibration. And, then, and, and when you go up, I mean, up to a more subtle level, from a more subtle level you can re- relate all the way out to the more gross level. So he didn't have to see them as more gross. He just would see the subtle, behave accordingly, and everything would happen as it was meant to happen. And that's what I realized with him a lot of the time. He was just, and he himself would say it, he was just doing what seemed like he ought to do. And when it would unfold to have had this ramification and that, and this having been the right thing to do and that, he wasn't surprised, but he hadn't pre-calculated it. He just, it, he, was, he lived in the now, and in the moment this was what felt right, and he wasn't, and it would just unfold, and he was accustomed to letting it unfold. He didn't need to trace out where it was going to go. That would be center everywhere, circumference yes, nowhere. In a sense, exactly. And no distract, no need to, I mean, not being distracted by the color of people's eyes because the center is so much deeper. Right, and he'd seen their eyes in many different colors, in many different incarnations, and I mean, that was really the other side of it, too, is that he said um, when he would meet someone after a separation, and I knew when he said that he meant a few years or a few incarnations because he would travel, you know, like go to a country he hadn't been in a while and he'd see someone he maybe hadn't seen in two years or something. There's a story in my book about Chittambar in that exact way where he would say, at first I may not recognize them, but then their eyes come into focus. That was the phrase he used. And he greeted Chittambar once, and he had met him many times, but he looked at him, and as as Chittambar described it later, it was like Swami didn't see him. And then he came into focus, and then all of a sudden he greeted him. I mean, nothing, Chittambar was just standing there the whole time, but he came into focus. But in the way that Swami would recognize him, he recognized his vibration. And, that, and that's, you know, we, we all work at whatever level we can work. I like having a good attitude, and I like being affirmative, and I like making the right choices. And it would be lovely to not have to will myself to do it or reason myself to do it. And, you know, sometimes we do. 
And we just, we just have to operate it wherever we operate. But Patanjali is talking about how you really do it. Okay, fair enough. Did you have a, a question? Go ahead. I, I was thinking that, that there's no evaluating, there's no thinking when you're living in the moment. Well, there's certainly a lot less of it. You know, that's why Swamiji could also, sometimes he would make correctives at Ananda. He said he could tell, he could tell immediately when the implications of a decision were going to take us someplace where we didn't want to go. And so he could sense that a decision was, because he, he didn't interfere much of the time, but whenever, as he put it, he could feel that the decision was going to take us off track. And sometimes he would see that long before anyone else could see that if we continue to follow this, then it's going to have a result. And it, that was a kind of following the threads, but it always started with him with just, he could feel this was, the energy of this was wrong, and therefore the consequences of this would be wrong. Wrong in the sense that it wasn't consistent with our self-definition or our, or our ideals or what we needed. So he, he, would, he would step in at times, sometimes when others didn't know. I remember, I found some notes that said, at one point he, he told us to, uh, try to move this couple out of the community, he said, because the wife was so negative. And we hadn't really tuned into it. But he said, you know, there's just there's a lot of negativity coming from there. You just really need to get them to move out, which, by the grace of God, they did. But it was more like he could feel it. He could feel that there was a, a vortex there that was going to cause us trouble. And he wanted it. He wanted to spare us by having us move it out. And he was completely right. It was interesting. That may have answered my question, which was if being in the now, that ability, or maybe it's not the ability to concentrate, maybe it's just being in the now, it doesn't open the door to intuition. The question is, does it open it to intuition? Yes, definitely. Because intuition is direct knowing without interference from... Yes, among other things. Exactly, you feel it. You're in direct relationship with it. Exactly. It's not that reason plays no part or reason doesn't come in afterwards. You all understand the balance. It's just a higher kind of knowing, which is what we've been just getting here page after page, is a higher kind of knowing because we've moved back from the oscillating part. Okay, interesting. So, then 354. Thus, apparently, thus, apparently indistinguishable differences between objects that are of the same species, that show the same characteristics, and that live in the same locality, become distinguishable from one another. You know, when I read this one, I, I just thought, yeah, what does the Sanskrit on this one sound like? <laughs> but it's, a very, it's just very interesting. That, that what I mentioned earlier, this quote from Autobiography of a Yogi, every atom is dowered with individuality. A thing or a person may be identical in appearance to some other, as happens sometimes with twins, but clear intuition, which perceives things at their essence, will penetrate to the uniqueness of each. <coughs> I mean, my notes here are pretty much what we just said just now. That Swamiji's capacity not to be bound by past or present and to concentrate right now just allowed him to see realities. I mean, I many, many, many times over the years, we would just, we would not be able to figure something out. Like, what's the right solution? Which direction should we go? You know, and we'd end up in a conversation with Swami and just in no time at all, he would propose a solution. 
And it wasn't even as if the solutions sometimes were so far out. Often they were just somehow right in front of us, but we hadn't seen them. You know, our, our basically our, the, our, our um, circumferences were too small. Of course, he was bold and he had the right to make decisions that um, uh, others of us didn't feel we had the authority to make. You know, he could pull this person from there and pull this one from here and switch them around and change that one and dissolve this and do that. So he did have a certain uh, ease in moving the parts around. But much of the time, it was just simply that he could see something that none of the rest of us could see. And even this uh, being able to distinguish what is unique about this situation was part of that. Because people think in terms of precedent. They think in terms of what worked before They think in terms of, you know, who are the usual players? How is the game usually done? You know, just all of those things. And we're, we're, in fact, the reasoning mind often wants to make these associations. We want to make things familiar to us. So we try to see them in terms that we already know. Instead of trying to see them in a completely fresh and unusual way, that tends to make us very insecure. So we, we prefer to say, oh, well, yes, that's right. This tastes a lot, you know, rattlesnake takes a, tastes a lot like chicken. <laughs> you know? It's just, you just want to take it and you want to make sure that it's, that it's something that you know, right? <laughs> but we do that all the time, don't we? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I keep remembering way back in here somewhere, when we first started talking about samadhi, we first got to samadhi, and there was, there's also one of the conversations that mentioned samadhi, and mm-hmm. essentially, I'm paraphrasing terribly, but he says, Master says, you cannot possibly understand what samadhi is from where you're standing. It's just right. so completely, utterly different from what you can mm-hmm. relate to. So now we've been spending week after week talking about stuff that happens after samadhi, and then I was remembering this phrase from the Bible where everybody quotes it all the time, and a lot of Christians quote it as, God says, my ways are not your are ways. Not ways. And you're always thinking about, you're not thinking, but this is, this is what that is. No, that's in fact, that's exactly what that means. The ways of divinity are not the ways of, of uh, human consciousness. And that's why when Swamiji was sitting in front of Master and just kind of trying to imagine what, what it was like to be him and Master looked at Swamiji and just said, if you knew my consciousness. And it just was to help him to appreciate that, we're, we're, you know, it's just a whole order of magnitude. As we, we talked about once, when you have become, the difference between someone who's bound by delusion and someone who isn't is infinity. <laughs> because one is infinite and one is still finite in their identification. So you can see what a... And on the other hand, it's also... We've already touched the hem of infinity. And, you know, we're holding a thread in our hand and we're being pulled into it. So it, it goes both ways. That's very I, I find it very encouraging, actually. I find it encouraging for a very simple reason that some of us were discussing this morning. Um, almost no one on the planet actually immerses themselves in this, re- in this kind of study, in this life. You know, that, that lives in the community and is guided by a master and practices these teachings, I mean. As master said, when Norman lamented, I, you know, I must have bad karma or something, and master said it takes very, very, very good karma. And really, that's the truth. 
whatever we have left in terms of what we don't know, which is, you know, uh, whatever. We've had that discussion several times. It's just really literally as nothing compared to what we have already done because look where we're standing. And so even if the, the time and distance to be traversed is great, um, we've, we've gotten a hold of the, the road to freedom. And so if we just put one foot in front of the other, for however many more footsteps it is, we're there. I mean, it's cause for great rejoicing. Whatever, whatever momentary um, dismay one may have over that annoying list of faults, and there's some encouraging, uh, there's some encouraging sutras coming up, because I've read ahead in the book. Um, nonetheless, they're really microscopic compared to the good karma that's there that's propelling us forward at this point. We have a hold of the hem of the Lord and we're not letting go. My picture is usually the ankle. You may be a little higher up, you've got the hem, but the hem, you know, hems tear. I like the ankle. <laughs> you just hold on to the ankle and then, you know, no matter what, <laughs> you just hold on. That's my point of view on it. I may be the last on the list, but I'm on the list. It's talking this morning about um, Shivani, who, who, of course, now 45 years later is a very different person, but when she was a, first at Ananda, she was very rebellious, and uh, just she really didn't like to conform. And you know, every so often, Ananda's self-definition would clarify, and you know, kind of the, the, the bottom would raise up a little bit. Shivani always joked that she always got in just before the gate closed. <laughs> you know, for a few times there, just before she would have been disqualified, she made it one more step <laughs> until she figured out what she was really doing. I mean, that's not true at all because she was magnificent from the start, but she was very independent-minded. That's all right. As Master said, I attract stubborn people. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on? Okay, this is Sutra number 355. second I've written something here I can't read it discriminative insight is that which simultaneously comprehends everything in every situation here it is it is pure intuition which leads to liberation true discrimination is the intuition mentioned in the last sutra oh I have written here that Swami could always solve things he always had the intuition to know what the answer was I mean, that, that was sort of what we're talking about um, Discriminative insight is that which simultaneously comprehends everything in every situation. Isn't that interesting? But you see, that's the, if you, keep, you keep with that image of the center of the wheel. You know, we, when we're on the edge of the wheel, you're having to look around. But if you're standing at the center of the wheel, you think of your consciousness extending out in all directions, very much like the light being inside the avatar and extending in all directions. You're, you're simultaneously everywhere. Remember that wonderful story of Dr. Ritchie talking about uh, life after death and his, his, uh, his going into the room with Jesus after he died of the flu. And he was in this room with Jesus and there was a 365 degree movie of his whole life from when he was conceived to the, literally to the present moment. And he described how it was all happening at the same time. And he, he wasn't just saying that the movie was showing all at the same time, 
but he could see that it all had happened at the same time. I mean, he 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 was uh, he was like he was like standing in the, you might say, in the hub of the wheel, center of the wheel, and it was all happening past, present, and future was going on around him. He was standing with Jesus in this experience. He could see it was all happening at the same time, and he could see also, which was annoying to him. He kept trying to get Jesus to excuse his 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 mean spirited, small mindedness because he was young. He was, he was only 21 or 22 at this moment when he died. And Jesus was having none of it, <laughs> you know. You were as responsible for your consciousness when you were a child as you are now. There was no such thing as being a child. He was trying to, uh, to uh, point Jesus in a slightly different direction right. to ignore some of the things around that. Right, but it was also what was so interesting... You know, he kept trying to justify himself on the fact that he was young. And Jesus just, you know, you're not young. I mean, because everything is happening at the same time. Your body's young, but your consciousness isn't. One more take. I was just thinking about that scene mm-hmm. in the time you'd been talking about, uh, you know, these last couple of sutras, and it just made it simpler to me to understand how a master can just read you like a book. I yeah, mean, yeah. he can just, I mean, figuratively turn his head and see any part of what you've ever done while you're doing it. Yeah. While you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's the amazing thing. Yeah. And then we don't listen well. You mean we don't listen to them when they speak to us? Or? That's exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, we can't hear because we have a lot of noise going on in our minds. Um, there was a woman uh, who used to ask Swamiji a lot of questions. And... Swamiji commented once, he said, the difficulty with her is that she asks me a question and while I'm answering her, she's formulating her next one. And she's not, she never actually hears the answer. She's so busy with her questions. And I mean, that's exactly what's happening with us. We're, we're praying, but we're so busy in the next moment anticipating God's response or being anxious about what it might be. Or uh, Swami talked about his cousin whose child, I believe, was born in some state of distress, you know, whatever the baby's problem was. The baby recovered, but the, the cousin spoke to Swamiji about just, even in such a moment, she said, I found that I couldn't hold my mind on my prayers. You know, I found it wandering to things like, what are we going to have for dinner? And, you know, she was saying, she was weeping while she was saying that. Even in such a moment, I couldn't, I just didn't have mastery over myself and I found my energy going in all directions. And th- that is true. That's, the, that's why he gave us the energization exercises, seriously. So th- and that's why the energization exercises are to a very large extent the backbone of what we do because what you're getting is you're getting mastery over your energy. Because when you stop and think about it, everything is about whether or not you can master your energy. Because concentration is nothing but energy mastery. And so the energization exercises done correctly really teach us to master our own energy. And if you can... And it's, it's, either, it's, more, it's a more accessible practice than some because you have your physical body, which is we're more used to um, using it. But it's, it's, people don't always see what you have in that. Swamiji made several other comments about it. It is Master's original contribution to the practice of yoga. He created those. It's not the yoga postures Swamiji 
<clears throat> made a new iteration of. Kriya Yoga is ancient, and Master um, amended it in certain ways to make it accessible to the American and Western <clears throat> mind, but he didn't. But the energization was his original contribution. And it's <clears throat> many reasons for that, but also Swamiji said the other thing is that this is the age of energy, you see. And so this is a time when people are able to understand things in terms of energy, so we're given a fundamental technique that is about energy mastery, and that's very in tune with the times. You couldn't have taught that in Kali Yuga because people wouldn't have understood it in the same mass way. And so for many, many reasons, it's really an important technique for us. I mean, I I find everything... I mean, any kind of distress... um, is lack of mastery over your energy. Self-mastery is everything. So it's worth, it's worth working on uh, when the stakes are lower because when the stakes are high, it's something you can't always muster it. Was there a question? Yeah. What do you think is, uh, is it um, we need to bring ourselves to the point where we believe God loves us? Pardon me? How much, do you, how much of the path do you think is us bringing ourselves to the point where we well, believe but, God loves us? Well, let's us? do it in reverse. How much does it affect your life to have the certainty that God loves you? That's the measure of it right there. What, what changes in your life? What shifts? I mean, we can be certain that God loves us. I mean, you see, we don't, we don't develop in linear patterns and we don't develop in consistent ways. Think of... I mean, it certainly opens a lot of doors and prevents a lot of suffering and keeps you out of a lot of cul-de-sacs. But you can be certain that God loves you and be too lazy still to do anything about it. So it just depends on, you know, everybody has strengths and virtues. That's what you finally begin to see is that because we're all individual, everybody has something that they know and then things that they don't know. And so again, Swamiji's marvelous qualities. In fact, he, he, he writes this out in some place, that Master never thought about our faults, and he really never cared about our faults. What Swamiji said, he would go into each disciple's consciousness and find, you know, what was good, and then he would just pull on that, because that would pull you forward. What's good will pull you forward, and what's not good is illusory. I mean, is, is only is only a veil over the light. So if you increase the light, that veil automatically dissolves. You don't, you don't uh, get rid of it by trying to get rid of it. You get rid of it by increasing the light. This is only partially related, but it's, it's still a point. Swamiji was, the, way he, the context in which Swami said this, that he was talking about a certain so-called teacher and how, how, how really false the teachings were. And someone said, well, have you read it? And the man, that, that teacher had produced a lot of writing. And somebody said, well, have you read, you know, many of his books? Swami said, I only read a couple of pages. He said, but in the middle of the night when you wake up, it only takes you a second to know it's dark. <laughs> Which is so simple. You don't have to read 300 books to know that it's dark. A few pages will tell you that. But that's sort of like, you know... It's, it's dark, but then it's not dark if you turn on the light. So you don't have to spend all that time trying to figure out what's going on in the dark. You just have to find the light switch because then it's over. And so that's how the masters would look at us. And, you know, having deep love of God and deep faith that God loves you is one of those qualities 
that the master would try to pull out of you because everything else will happen after that. I was thinking of that song in the Festival of Light, uh, Long We Feared to Face Your Love. I mean, he, you know, the fact that Swami put that in there it made me think it's a pretty important It's very important. Quote. Yeah, and all the reasons why we don't. Yeah, big point. Okay. So, then moving right along, 356, we are now at the end of book number three, which is amazing. When the tranquil mind attains purity equal to that of the self, one attains absoluteness. When the mind becomes tranquil, it goes beyond thought and perceives the self becoming one with it. From here it is not even a hop, skip, and a jump (laughs) to the absolute. One is there already. The following words are excerpted from Yogananda's poem Samadhi as it appears in Autobiography of a Yogi. Myself in everything enters the great myself, gone forever, fitful flickering shadows of mortal memory, Spotless is my mental sky, below, ahead, and high above. Eternity and I, one united ray, a tiny bubble of laughter. I am become the sea of mirth itself. That is probably some of the greatest words ever written in any language. I have so often contemplated, I mean, that whole poem, if you ever, you know, recite it or read it. It goes, you know, uh, I swallowed, transmuted all into a vast ocean of blood of my own one being. But the whole thing ends with those lines, a tiny bubble of laughter. I am become the sea of mirth itself. After all the, you know, magnificent drama of the whole thing, it comes back to this childlike um, delight in this uh, infinite reality. That's where Swamiji, uh, it would happen to be a satsang in India, when he talked about how simple God is and how we imagine that he must be complex, but the complexity is in the delusion. And then Swami talked about vibration, that the more wildly the vibration moves, in other words, the more strongly we are away from the still one point of center, the longer the span, the quicker the move, the more iterations, the more ripples that are created out in the, um, in the pond by the stones being thrown into the pond, all of that. But that's this world. That's the world that we see. I mean, think how complicated this world is. It's just, it's just amazing. There's so many extraordinary vortices. Many years ago, I was in Houston and went to see the NASA Center in Houston because we, were, we, had, we had time and we thought it would be interesting and it was very interesting. As soon as stepped on the property there, realized that I was in the middle of another karmic group. You know, Ananda is a very strong karmic group. We were together in the astral world where we've been related for many incarnations we recognize each other. We have this um, natural harmony because of our association over so many incarnations and so many places. We've done so much work together. When with William, we've been with Henry. You know, we've been all of these different places doing all of these different things. And when I stepped into the NASA area, 
I realized that this was a whole nother universe of these people. And the, the, these souls are here. They're the Atlanteans. And they're here for Dwapar Yuga to bring it into this technology. I mean, space travel is a huge part of where we're going in this new age. And they probably recognize each other and know each other and have all the same involved karmas that we have and just a wholly different destiny going on. One which is like, well, I have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. I stepped onto the property, so there must be some link somewhere. And I looked at all their little exhibits and found them absolutely fascinating. But, you know, like nothing. But for the people there, that's their whole universe. I mean, that's just, that's tiny. We're just talking one part of one planet. It's so complicated. So we imagine that if we go to the creator of it, it must get more and more complicated. And this is and so, but Swami said just the opposite, you see. Because the closer we get to the creator, the vibration ceases. So instead of, of this, all of this, and all that it creates, it goes to this. And, and that, you know, that's absolute simplicity. And then it finally goes to stillness. It goes to, to, to one still point, which is the antithesis of complexity. And that's why saintly people become very simple. Childlike is the word that we use, but, but not at all stupid. Uh, in fact, it's all that we're talking about. They can penetrate to the heart of everything. But they don't do it with complexity. They do it with the opposite. And so we said this in the satsang that night. And uh, I, had, I remember I had just arrived from America. And I remember sitting on the stairs sort of behind him, trying to stay awake and listen. I heard him, and I did hear it. I wrote it down, and I remembered. But the next morning, he said, like this, he said, I wonder how many people appreciated how very important what I said was last night. And then he came back and he said it again. He said, I wonder how many people heard me. He said, that was a very important revelation I was offering there. And it is because we get caught up in that complexity. And when, when we have difficulties, when, when we're struggling with ourselves, struggling for self-mastery, struggling for self-acceptance, struggling for faith, struggling for solutions to problems... Uh, you know, uh, struggling for achievement, whatever it is, whatever it is that we might be doing, we often imagine that the road to what we're looking for is a complicated one, and we don't understand that what's creating the problem is that we've made it complicated, and that if we get back, I mean, what was Master's statement? Love God. And any, any issue that you're dealing with, you can trace it all the way back. If you do, you'll find that every problem is the same problem. And then you, you save yourself this enormous struggle that we feel compelled to go into because we're confused. Yes? Uh, what was Swami's re- re- revelation that you're referring to? God. We, we imagine that God is complex when delusion is complex, but the divine is the essence of simplicity. That still center would represent when, for us, when we would actually merge back into God. That would be the final point. 
the astral plane, say, or the astral world where we're headed that direction, it's so much more simple to create in your mind and have flowers spring up all around you than what we have to do here to have. Well, that's, that is one way of thinking of it. I wasn't, I wasn't so much thinking about vibratory levels in that way, but you're right, where there's, there's, less, um, there's less of a separation. I mean, we're, we're, we're operating more from, the, from our own center, from our power. We've taken a whole level away from it. But I was thinking more how closely we're centered in God, whatever plane we're on. That whether we're centered in ego or we're centered in God, whether we've identified with distance, whether we imagine things are complicated. We imagine things are complicated well, because they all look so separate. But when we recognize that we're all the same, that everything is the same and all the people around you are all the same, then your heart to heart, you realize their realities are the same as yours. You can see how everything gets much simpler. But then you, then, and then you act as just everything we were saying. Your intuition becomes perfectly clear because it's just obvious what to do. You're, you're part of it. And that's where Swami said to me years ago, it's so hard to know what God wants, I said. He said, no, it's not. <laughs> and it was because, for me, because I was oscillating wildly in all of these desires and fears and, and what-ifs and an- analysis, and I just couldn't bring anything to a still point. He said, no, it's not. Essentially, you just come to that still point, and then it's obvious. It's simple then. And I thought all these factors had to be considered. No, you just have to let go of all those factors, and then it's simple. That's why he was saying he wasn't sure that we understood what he was offering us. And we didn't. I mean, there you have it. That's the story. Go ahead. <clears throat> well, when you're you know, like working on a project, and um, everybody's got different points of view and and, it, and it, it all seems so complicated but it's just because everybody's somewhere else you know they're not all they're not I don't even well, know well it is complicated is. but see it becomes more complicated when you are pulled off of your own center if you're sitting in your own center and you're just watching people work it out then you just watch people work it out and you know how to contribute, know when to contribute. So it's okay to just sit there and watch? Chandra, these are not theoretical answers. Oh. Yeah, there's, these are not theoretical answers. You center in yourself. You know, the, the, the answer is center in yourself. You, there's no rules for any of this. That's what the whole point is. It can't be reasoned out. It has to be in the moment. Love God, love God. Love God. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Why can't you just tell us the secret to the universe so we can be done with it? <laughs> I'll tell you. Because yeah, when I find out, I'll let you know. All right. Anything else? Okay. Even though we're going to change to the next book, we'll just do it because it doesn't really matter. But we are now in the last book, Kaivalya the fourth book. This book is on absoluteness. And it starts in a most amusing manner. 4.1 Siddhas are born of of practices performed in previous lives or of the ingestion of certain herbs or by the repetition of certain mantras 
or by pain enduring tapasya, self-denial, or by samadhi, oneness with God. Now, Swami's commentary is so delightful. Now, why, in the last book of this great scripture, are we back again on this subject, he says. It's exasperating. (laughs) I can only think that these issues in Patanjali's day must have been important. That's interesting. And he actually says much later on that he thinks somebody else just... Did someone introduce this into Patanjali? He says, I am willing to think so. <laughs> you know, he just, he just sort of, you know, he's bold enough to say this doesn't make sense. And Swami so comments sometimes about the Bible the same way. He says, you know, there's a lot of things that were just stuck in there. And he talks about in the, in the scriptures and in the stories of India, he talks about, you know, especially when it was an oral tradition, he said a, a storyteller who gets a good reaction from a certain... Uh, line is going to be inclined to embellish it the next time (laughs) and pretty soon it just starts going and things get a life of their own because there's human instruments in all of this especially you know these very ancient things you may have started with a pure revelation but many many hands have scribed it since that time and it 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 doesn't pay um, to be too presumptuous about rejecting certain things. But when certain things don't make sense, it's at least worthwhile to consider the fact that maybe it doesn't make sense and I don't have to make sense out of it. You know, I I could just leave it. Either it will come clear to me later or Swami has the right to say this is exasperating. So I think we'll, before we really go into this one, let's just take a short break and then we'll come back and then do this one. Okay. We're now in book number four, sutra number one. And what Swami is objecting to here is that it says that you can have siddhas from the ingestion of certain herbs. So he spends most of his commentary saying, on that's, saying that's baloney. <laughs> and that's why he believes that somebody else stuck this in here trying to assert something. Because it, you know, it, it just, it, it isn't true. Yeah. Well, but he's really talking about drugs. And I think it's worth, you know, in the modern context, it's about hallucinogenics and I think it's worth, I'm going to talk about it a little bit because it's worth talking about. So uh, he says, first of all, obviously a person's activities in previous lives would influence their, his abilities in this life. This point seems hardly necessary to make. He's so annoyed about this one. And then, Sid has come through the ingestion of certain herbs. We today know of marijuana, sacred quote-unquote mushrooms, and the chemical LSD. There may have been others in those days. Since this is the only item newly introduced here, however, I cannot but think that this sutra was written mainly for its inclusion. And he says, I've had plenty of experience with these herbs, not that I've ever taken them, but I have seen their effects. And then he goes on to speak in very accurate terms about what the effects of drugs are. You know, some of us of a certain age came through a time when all of those um, drugs were just sort of coming into more common usage than they had before. And we either had direct experience or saw a lot of what Swami saw. And Swami, um, his, his emphasis is very strongly is that um, what happens when you take those drugs, it's really exactly what Patanjali says of, as false hallucinations. Now, let me just, I'm just going to give, give the one little bit of credit that Swamiji was always willing to give whenever he would talk about this subject. Was He said, because of the generation that I grew up in, and a lot of people you know, were activated in their spiritual search 
by some experience that was ingesting some herb of one kind or another. Um, because it awakened them to the possibility of an, another reality. Um, but it wasn't really the taking of the drug that m- m- allowed them or gave them the capacity to progress. It was just merely that it awakened them to a possibility. And then there were two ways to go from that. Either a person then became serious about that possibility and began to try to understand how to find that in your own life, or a person became enamored of the capacity to recreate those experiences. Uh, in, the, in the book that I published of Ask Asha, there's a question in there from a woman who says, you know, my boyfriend and I or my fiancé, um, he believes that taking sacred substances uh, is a valid path on spiritual progress. And I'm a meditator, and I think a Kriyaban even, and we seriously disagree on this point. And so she sort of asked me, what do I think? Are these points of view reconcilable? And it's been a, you know, I spent a long time on all of those answers. And all the answers in that book were to, all the questions in that book were real questions from real people. So I wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't just like a theoretical answer. It was like somebody had a real situation that I had to tune into and really answered, which makes the whole book much more dynamic because uh, it was specific. Of course, the answers sometimes had universal application, but they were really somebody's life that had to be sorted through. And uh, the, the, Swamiji hits a lot of the points about what happens when people take drugs because merely because and having, having given the little bit of credibility that people have experiences that, do, that may feel expansive to them, but the way you can tell a true, a true path from a false one is by the fruits. And the fruits are not just what happens when my body chemistry is altered, but what is the overall effect of altering your body chemistry like that and having those experiences. And what seems to be really true is that most of the time a person is going into a subconscious world, um, even though the experience may feel superconscious and may feel cosmic in import, but it's subconscious in this sense, which is the when you think of subconscious, conscious, and superconscious from this perspective, the subconscious world is an entirely self-enclosed world. And that's one of the things that makes it subconscious, is that it's, It's completely limited, it's completely subjective, and only the person having that experience can have that experience. And that's why when when you're in subconscious sleep and you have sleep dreams, you're the only one who's having them. Even if everybody you know is in the dream with you, they're not experiencing it with you because it's completely a world of your own creation. And when you you think about it... um, uh, Madness, uh, mental imbalance, is when people move so deep into a subconscious world, even if their eyes are open and they're talking in this world, it's subconscious in the sense that it's, un- it's their own reality and it's not a shared reality. You know, people are talking about, you know, there's bugs crawling all over my skin or, you know, the, I'm the king of Spain and you're all my subjects or, you know, I can fly and so they jump off a building or something like that. You know, terrible things that happen because it's all a subconscious world. It's a reality that's just made up for them and no one can share it. 
And so this is how you also gauge the, the relative um, relationship to, to, the, to, to truth is by the degree to which it separates you from other people and the rest of creation as compared to when it unites you. If yoga is the union, then everything that separates you is the opposite of that. The conscious level, which is when we're wide awake and we're having experiences like we're having now, we're, we're actually all having more or less the same experience. This isn't like a dream. It's like if, I, if we all go home, we all know where we've been and we all have had essentially a shared experience. So reality has expanded to that extent. It's not like we just dream this and nobody knows even what we dreamed. We're all, we're all here in this room and we're all having this experience. However, if we all compared notes, we would all discover that there was a, a, a degree of separation in everybody's experience. Each one of us may be wandering in different directions or picking up different pieces or remembering different parts or something really connects and so you're holding on to that and someone else is holding on to something else and my experience in the room is slightly different than yours, all of that. But still, we all know where we were and if we had to draw a picture, it would, we would know where we all were. So the conscious level is greater, in, closer to truth than the subconscious because we're not crazy, we're all doing it together. And on the superconscious level is when we actually perceive and experience um, our, uh, the actual unity among us. And one who is superconscious in this situation, if we were all superconscious together, again, we would, we would all have a completely shared reality. Our, our individualities would merge and we would have one reality. Or any individual in this room who is superconscious, that superconsciousness encompasses everyone's reality. Because that's when you're closer to the truth as you're encompassing more. So the thing about drugs is no matter what the subject of the hallucination or the experience, it's, it's an entirely self-directed experience. And you see people who are stoned, or maybe you've been there yourself, and you know, you're just living in a different world. And you may think sometimes that you're really connecting with the world around you, but you can rarely actually do that. And if you're not um, affected by the drug and that person is with you and they're trying to tell you about all the unity they're feeling with you, it's extremely rare that you actually feel anything from them other than that this person is really stoned. (laughs) You know, it's not like being with Swami Kriyananda who is living in another reality than the reality we're living in but when you're with him, you, you're connected. His, his expanded awareness makes you feel included and, and involved and acknowledged and understood and uplifted. Whereas when you're with someone who even says they're in a, a cosmic state, you, you don't feel it. You know, we've, all, we've been there, many of us, and we've seen it. We know what it looks like. That's what Swami talks about because he never took drugs, but he's been in places where people were, and he just could see. In fact, he goes so far as to say he's felt, he's felt a satanic force in such places because people were vacating their um, responsibility for their own minds. And when you vacate responsibility for your own mind, you open yourself to dark astral entities. So, you know, really, I mean, very bad things can happen to people. People don't know what they're messing around with. Now, that's, you know, the mechanics of it. The other thing that I, I answered this woman in this letter was 
the nature of um, sacred substances as a path to uh, enlightenment is that you start defining your path to enlightenment by the experiences you're having. And on the surface of it, you know, you think, well, sure, that's the whole point, isn't it? I'm supposed to have these big experiences. But that isn't the point of it. And this Patanjali also, this, the whole Patanjali is describing it here. If you are self-controlled, if you do tapasya, if you practice the yamas and the niyamas, if you have broken your ego identity, then the natural result of those um, experiences is that your consciousness expands. It doesn't say that progress on the spiritual path is that I had this experience and this experience and this experience and this experience. No. Progress on the spiritual path is when you begin to transcend the ego. That's progress on the spiritual path. But when you're trying to follow a so-called spiritual path, which is just a question of, I'm going to take this drug and have this experience and get this vision and so on. What is your thought? What, What I can get? What I can get? What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? Whereas true spiritual growth is what can I give? How can I serve? How can I give to God? How can I love God more? And so I wrote to this woman, I said, this is a symbol. You know, you're, if you're trying to follow this path together, you, do you really want to make your partner someone who thinks about his life in terms of what he can get when you, as a true devotee, want to think of your life in terms of what you can give? I said that drugs are a symbol, but what you're really talking about is a profound conflict of values and that you have to really think seriously about this before you can connect. And, and so therefore, just by definition, there's just no possibility that it would work. You know. Uh, well, it is a good answer. I suppose he wrote it, and I thought it's been a long time thinking about it. There's, a, there's that wonderful story that Ram Dass always tells um, Richard Alpert when he first went to see Neem Crowley Baba, and he, of course, was the father of the whole LSD thing, and Neem Crowley Baba took an entire handful of high-grade LSD, which... Uh, Richard Alpert had taken all the way to India and he swallowed the whole handful. And there was no change in his consciousness. I mean, he said he, he took more than any human could even imagine taking. had no effect on him. Swami, you know, he, and he, he said something in his cheeky way of, you know, so much for that, huh? <laughs> Swami tells the story of a, there was a Swami Narayan that was in Delhi, I think a friend of the, of Indu and Rani Bond, Swami's friends in Delhi. And I don't know what the context was, but he drank, you know, like four bottles of whiskey. Swami said, like, more whiskey than... I mean, it was almost more liquid than a person could drink. Absolutely no effect on his consciousness. It's just, these things are... Well, this is, this is the story that I, I told earlier about uh, the scientists from the university going to measure uh, Swami Purushottamananda's I think that's who it was, his brainwaves. And now he just made, made a mockery of their systems. Just no brainwaves, chaotic brainwaves, brainwaves different here, different there. And then at the end of it, he just looked at them and said, you know nothing about consciousness. No, you know nothing about the mind, is what he said. So it's like these are, these are tinker toys. 
But they're serious problems because you, you become not only ego-centered, but the, the, the most serious problem, and Swami would always say this about marijuana especially, because people would try to say that marijuana wasn't really such a bad thing. And everybody argues for what they want. Reason is amazing. You know, if, if you want it, you just find a way to say that it's a good thing. But um, the effect of marijuana, is, he says, is that it weakens the willpower. And when you start thinking, as I was talking earlier about, you know, and, and mastery over your energy is everything. And, the, and I, I, I thought about that a lot because when he first, when I first heard him say that, I was closer to those hippie days and when all those drugs were around and there were a lot more people um, taking them in, in my world. You know, I moved away from it. I, I, I moved through it, you know, just very peripherally and very quickly, but still it was part of my generation. Um, but uh, what happens with marijuana use, as I've observed it, is uh, everything seems everything seems really great, and you don't have to work for it. You know, you just like everything is beautiful, and all thoughts are profound, and all food is delicious, and all music is great, and just sitting there, just doing nothing, seems like a big event. You know, so as a consequence, this thought just comes into your mind that I can have all this gratification without putting out any energy. And, and again, these things, they just make grooves in your consciousness. Why should I put out any energy when I can have these great experiences by doing nothing? And then when I'm doing nothing, I think I'm doing something. I mean, do you see how confused your mind gets? I mean, that's what Swamiji would say about the people who use drugs. Sometimes he would say, about such and so, he would ask, do you think they used a lot of drugs? Because a lot of the people who ended up, you know, being serious about the spiritual path would come through that. And sometimes he would, we would know, that, yeah, that person took drugs for longer than they should have, and it just left all these confused impressions in their minds. And, and these are things, they're not just things that you can think about, because they're things that just impress, you know, they, they impress you. And they become a habit. And who knows how many lifetimes you've been following these habits, too. And, and so, and so we'd, you know, he, he would watch people come out of it. But sometimes it really was the explanation, and he would just look at it. Oh, yeah, their mind's confused by having taken those drugs. They have to, it's going to take time to shake, shake it off. You have to shake the illusion off. Master, Master actually is very... Um, very strong about these things. You, you know, he doesn't have this casual, oh, let young people experiment attitude. He said, he says, just speaking about alcohol, he said you should never even take one sip, ever. He said, because you don't know what samskars you have. If you, I mean, there are many people who will tell you who became alcoholics in this lifetime that they became alcoholics as soon as they, as soon as they drank. You know, there was no transition point. And you just don't know what your samskars are. These are... These are serious things to play with. It's, it's not like it just doesn't matter. It's like it affects us. Now, if you have it in your past, also everything has changed by meditation. Somebody sent me an article of scientific research recently that I didn't read at all, but the essence of it was that meditation changes your DNA. <laughs> you know, that's what they're discovering, which is to say consciousness is the power that affects everything. Change your consciousness and all these material things will just shift to meet you. You're not, you're, you know, your, your, your body is ruled by your consciousness. Your consciousness 
you may not be able to transcend the physical influence at all times, but the power is in your consciousness. It's not in your body. The greater power. But of course you have to access that power. But wow, you don't want to monkey with that. You know, my hippie days were short because I didn't like it. It just like, you know, I didn't like drinking. I didn't like drugs because, wow, I didn't want to monkey with my mind. I really liked my mind. And I did not enjoy when it got muddled up. Whoa, this was not fun. It was freaky. So, ooh, no, not for me. But everybody's different. Some people, and I can understand this, wow, relief from my mind. <laughs> and that I can understand but uh, don't think it doesn't matter that's all I'm saying and, and when people are trying to persuade you that it's all the same, it isn't so, did somebody have a microphone or a comment? okay so then Swamiji goes on and he says, did someone introduce this bit into Patanjali? I'm willing to think so herbs may induce visions but they cannot make a person, this is how I put Herbs may induce visions, but they cannot make a person virtuous. Okay? And the visions are more likely pure hallucinations. At least I never heard the slightest hint of wisdom coming from people who took those herbs. And that's just, there it is. You know, and we, you know our neighbors up in Nevada City are largely... Uh, up in our Ananda village, there's a lot of our neighbors are way, way into this culture, the medical marijuana scene now. Yeah. But you, you see them, and they're, just, they're not shiny-eyed, they're not dynamic willpower, they're not um, uplifting. They're the fruit, you just look at the fruit. I mean, they're, they're, they're nice people as a group, you know, they're nicer than some. Um, but that doesn't mean they're on a valid spiritual path. It just means they're having a holiday. <laughs> Long holiday. Well, we take incarnations that are holidays. When Swami went to Hawaii, he said, be, Hawaii before the missionaries came and brought disease and put them in mumus and all of that. He said, incarnating in Hawaii was like not quite coming out of the astral world. <laughs> you didn't have to work. The food was just there for you. you didn't, food, shelter, clothing, nothing was a problem. You could just, you know, it was just almost like the astral world. Just reach up your hand and take a coconut. It wasn't quite the same as manifesting with your mind, but it was really close to it. You would, you would come there when you were sort of only half, half needing to incarnate. <laughs> okay, so he also then says, the repetition of certain mantras does bestow powers, but if one does not also purify himself, those powers will serve him little. And you won't, it doesn't do you any good to have powers if you don't have purity, in fact, it, they'll lead you astray because then you'll just have a more force in which to impact your delusion. It just doesn't do anything. So that's what Buddha was against when he was against the karma kund, it was called, or too many rituals to gain powers. Tapasya has been explained before. By preventing the body's energy from being scattered, one can certainly acquire powers. And then again, these are all of limited effectiveness. If the intention is I'm doing this for a power, then by definition, you're not really following the path that's actually going to transform you. You will get what, you're, what you want, but, what, but that is not really what you want. And that's the difficulty. The only valid portion of this sutra is about samadhi. Naturally, when you have realized God's presence everywhere, you have the power 
to change the dream itself. I love the way, um, you know, that's, that's a whole different concept. It's, Swami always tells that story of how um, Oliver Black was with Master at Encinitas, and Master called and said, let's go for a ride in the car. Oliver looked outside, and it was absolutely pouring rain, just pouring rain so much that, his, as he said, they wouldn't be able to see out the window. But Oliver said, sure. So he put on his coat, he walked out of the room, and he walked, you know, just seconds virtually away and met Master. And when he got outside, there wasn't a, a cloud in the sky. And he said, and more than that, the ground was dry. Everything was dry. And that was when Master looked at Oliver and said, Oliver, for you. Meaning, I did this for you. But what Swami always repeats when he repeats that story is that Master, as he calls it, changed the dream. Because it wasn't merely like it was dry right where they were sitting or something like that. It was like the whole, the whole place had been soaking wet. And then all of a sudden it wasn't soaking wet. It had been a rainstorm and then it wasn't. All of reality, Master had just shifted, just very casually just shifted all of reality. I mean, it's quite... And did it so easily and did it in, in time that you couldn't even measure. You know, he didn't, he didn't uh, get the sun really hot and dry out the ground or anything. It was just it was raining and it wasn't. When Swami, used to, uh, Swami visited Satya Sai Baba and Satya Sai Baba was known for manifesting things. He would just, it, was, it wasn't there and then it was. And Swamiji talked about, he, 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 he refused to comment on whether or not it was a good or a bad thing for Satya Sai Baba to do that. People, everybody had lots of opinions. He said he did it almost like a child. It just, and, and it was just, it wasn't there and then it was there. Just change the dream. Just have the power to just, there's nothing in my hand and now there's something in my hand. And no, he said there was no big mumbo-jumbo and, you know, see my hands are empty, see my sleeves are up, you know, nothing like that. It was just like here. And it, it was taken from nowhere. It just was in his hand when he opened it. And it just, uh, amazing, huh? Yes. Um, perhaps not worth saying, but it's brief. Uh, he didn't just change Oliver's dream, he changed everybody's dream, I'm right. sure. Yeah. That was the distinguishing characteristic that Swami made about that, was that just everybody was living in this, this dream of God's in which it had been raining. And then all of a sudden everybody was living in the dream that Master had created in which it had never rained. And there never was a dream of being in the top. The, the previous dream was just gone, never happened. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. It's just, and you know, there, this is not quite the same, but when Master had Durgamata repeat the mantra and pound on the porch with her shoe to stop this fierce wind that had just come up suddenly and Master said was accumulated karma from the Second World War that had just created this, this evil wind, literally. And he, and he had her stop it. She stopped this evil wind. There's a story in Mukunda about, in Mejda, the book about Mejda, of Master's father needing to go to some other city and it was raining and there were all these floods and he couldn't travel. And then Makunda sat and put toy folded newspaper boats onto the, the puddles for half an hour and then all the waters receded and the storm stopped. Huh. You just have, we just have no idea. 
But all these forces are interrelated. It, it seems miraculous because we can't see it. But they're all interrelated. People just know, if you know what the relationships are, then you just move the energy, either instantaneously, as he did for Oliver, or by means of these mantras or boats or whatever it was that Master was doing. Master pulling the kite, you know, and pulling the kite to him. Amazing. Okay. Oliver re- is able to remember both dreams to tell us about it. Well, probably everybody was standing there could. Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, Oliver knew that both dreams happened. It was raining and then it wasn't. Huh? Just for you, Oliver. Yes. This four one just seems so This four one just seems so way way out of the ballpark. Do you think that maybe the uh, the wor- the words were not translated properly? I mean, like it could be cities cities are born with practices performed in previous lives. The ingestion of certain herbs or the repetition of certain mantras or the pain, blah, 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 blah. It, I, I mean, well, it Swami, just seems so silly. I don't, I don't have any... I would have absolutely no way of knowing, so Swami's, Swami's explanation is it was just stuck in here. And it was stuck in here to justify the herbs. Yeah. It's like describing that people could be born in... It just, it just, it's, not up, it's not up to snuff. It's not up to Patanjali's previous standard. It's not what we expect of the man. And so that's why Swami just says, I think there's something fishy about this. And, and in the, Swami comments at various points in the New Testament too that, there's some, that, that certain, certain verses seem a little self-serving to him. And he just doesn't trust that they weren't just stuck in there. With all due respect... <clears throat> Have you ever compared the first to the 13th edition of Autobiography of a Yogi? Yeah, so things happen. People think that they're doing the right thing even when they're not. Okay, enough for tonight? Very good. See you next week. In three more classes we will definitely finish. And if we finish before then we'll have a little party or something. I don't know what we'll do. Excuse me, we went from um, we went from three fifty three through four one.